Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week we talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. If you're like me, you've probably experienced that feeling that you get when you go to a supermarket and you're confronted with a baffling array of wines and no clue on how to pick them. My guest today is Heine Zakariasen, who understood that feeling and founded Vivino to solve that very problem for the day wine drinker. Vivino is the world's largest online marketplace and the most downloaded wine app, 50 times larger than the nearest app competitor. During Heine's tenure, Vivino grew into the largest wine community in the world, close to 60 million users, and has raised around $221 million in funding. A seasoned entrepreneur and now an active angel investor, I'm delighted to welcome Heine to the show today. Welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Heine, I know that you were born in the Faroe Islands. Do you think there was anything specific in your upbringing that helped you become the entrepreneur that you are today? Yes. I think when you look at your life, I'm definitely always going to say yes to that question. And if we want to be a little bit specific, I think there are certain things. For instance, like it, it's a very safe place to grow up. You just have a childhood where you feel like pretty equal to everybody else and just a really nice environment. And I do believe that the people who take more risks are willing to take chances in business and in life sometimes have actually a more safe upbringing. So I think that matters. And another thing is that when you're in a very small society, you do feel like you can change things. You feel like, you know what, I can call the prime minister or something like that. It's so small, it just or you just meet him on the street somewhere. So I think that matters too, that you feel like you can change things. I think you're, if you grew up in a random place in the US somewhere, things might be a little bit more heavy and you see it's a little bit harder to change things. So I grew up with that mindset. I think that's important. Interesting. It's interesting that you talk about having a safe environment. I would not have equated safe environment with risk-taking and entrepreneurship. But I actually think it, it is true, right, that, that the people that have a life that might be maybe many risks and many, or many things that they're insecure about, it's harder for they're going to search for like safety and so on, whereas people that are used to maybe, let's use the word privileged, are willing to take more chances. And I've always felt privileged. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm willing to take more chances. Very interesting. I've never looked at it from that perspective. Heine, that's really interesting. So maybe that's a really good segue into how you entered into the wine business because you were an outsider. You came from a cybersecurity field and you entered this incredibly traditional industry, which very few people know anything about from the outside. How do you think the being an outsider 
helped you? Yeah, it's quite interesting because I actually mostly think it is an advantage. And I think we very often make the mistake of thinking when we look at David and Goliath, who is actually David and who is Goliath. I think being an outsider has a lot of strengths, really. It's we think differently. We're not sort of embedded in doing the things the way they've always been done. So I think it can be a massive advantage, actually, to be an outsider. Um, And I was in in Copenhagen, Denmark, when we started the business. And and what we knew anything about was the wine drinker, the people that consumed the wine. And they were always our priority. They were the most important thing. Who's going to drink the wine. I remember back then, like I said, based in Copenhagen, I would actually fly out to California quite a bit, maybe go to Napa and visit some wineries, produce and really get into the industry. And I was talking to my co-founder about this. And at some point we we realized that every time I come back from Napa, I just come back with horrible ideas, like really (laughs) bad ideas. And the reason is that I was talking to the industry and the industry was not my top priority. The people that drank the wine were the top priority. So you just talk to all these people. They agree you should do this, you should do But really, that was not what you should be doing. Interesting. So talking about the industry, I was with a company that was trying to reinvent how news was put together and the kind of news people consumed. And in that, there was this constant conflict between what the end user wanted in the news and what they felt was lacking and how the journalists viewed that technology. And again, I think very similar to what you've been talking, you spoke about, felt very threatened that this technology was somehow going to take away their jobs. And I know you've mentioned that even in the wine industry, it's a really close-knit community. How important was it to get the wine industry on the side of Avino? Or was that not something that was important in trying to get your message and your acceptability into mainstream? Yeah, I think it was really important to ignore the wine industry. I think it was really important to say, okay, the people that we are serving are the people that love wine, are passionate of wine, and drink wine. The people that really consume wine and want to learn about it, they are the people. And as soon as you start listening to other interests, you might lose focus a little bit. So so I really don't think it was very important. And I spoke to some of the years back in the day, and they were really afraid of this and so on. But really, it's it wasn't really called for because most people that go to a restaurant really don't have access to a sommelier. And when you have a sommelier, you should definitely use that sommelier, which is because that's a privilege to have access to a sommelier. It's a big promoter of sommeliers. Like today, a lot of sommeliers are big promoters of Vivino. Yeah, you probably are going after a different market than what the sommelier is typically looking to serve. No, and really what, if Vivino is used in the right way, you could also show the sommelier what your preferences are and so on. So I think we could enable the sommelier to do their work in a better way by using Vivino because Vivino really knows the person that they're talking to. They might not know the exact wines in the restaurant's wine cellar, but Vivino knows the the user and so on, and the som could use all that data. Interesting. When you go back to those early years, in one of your interviews, you said you never pivoted. And I thought that was really interesting because startups pivot all the time. Why do you think you had the case where you did not need to pivot? Yeah, I I think it's, again, a lot of that has to do with, um, with luck or whatever your business model is. It's just that our business where you took a picture of a wine label as you were buying it or as you were drinking it or whatever, 
like putting a buy button there and saying, hey, you can buy this wine too, just makes a lot of sense, like both in reality and also on pitch decks early on. So when we told that story, they bought into it right away. But when we look back now, we think, was that the best business model? Should we have done other things? And sometimes we have doubts today that maybe you should have done this revenue stream and then that revenue stream and then built the marketplace. Mm. So yes, we went in a straight line, but I'm not always sure that was the right thing to do. Okay, I see. I believe there were competitors, right? I know Vivino is the biggest, but there were people doing something like that. So how did you guys view competition? What was your strategy for growth and for differentiation? I think one of my philosophies on that is that I do not look a lot at the competition. Like the competition can really derail you incredibly Mm. quickly. And, oh, these guys have this new feature. We should do that. In the end, you just run around like zigzagging between different ideas that others do. Just keep an eye, but mostly ignore what they're doing. Focus on what your goal is, what you think you should do, what problem you should solve. And for us, and I, for us, it, what was important was that we knew exactly what problem we wanted to solve, meaning, hey, you have a bottle of wine in front of you. I want to know if it's good or not so good. Mm. That's important. Number two, who are you solving it for? Because there's a lot of people out there. Some right. of them are experts. Some of them are not at all experts somewhere in the middle. So know exactly what the problem is you want to solve and who you want to solve it for. I think that's key. And this is where you can get distracted by the competition. Oh, they have this new fancy feature, but who did they actually build that feature for? Does it match your audience and so on and so forth? So I would aggressively ignore the competition too. Really good advice. And I love your focus on the end user and being really clear about the target segment you're going. So how did you get that continuous feedback from your target user on what they need? So our philosophy has always been that we're willing to take certain risks when it comes to releasing product. It just means you can release faster. Obviously, you can do a thousand focus groups and do all kinds of stuff in the lab. We always believed in pushing forward and releasing stuff. So when you build an app, you actually have pretty decent sort of feedback loops. You have the app store's comments and reviews. You have the ratings, which can be has no mercy. And obviously you get emails from people and so on. So as soon as you get a little bit of traction, my advice is, and you know, not everybody should do this depending on what kind of product you have. If it's a like a life-saving product, you should probably be more careful. This is a wine app. So we can take some chances. We would always release and push forward and listen. It's just so much faster. So that was always our way of doing it. Release fast, fail fast yeah. and learn. Totally. And listen, yeah, totally. I know it's a huge ask with so many years, so many lessons, so many experiences, but are there one or two things you feel Vivino did right that you would highly recommend other founders to think of doing? And one or two things that are lessons learned that other founders should be cautious about? I'm going to come back to product again. So why did we win this space? I think it's it's a basic answer, maybe a little bit boring. It is because we built the right product. And so I would always double down on product. And that's what wins in the long term. Keep building, keep improving, and know your audience and just keep pushing. And coming back to, hey, what do you have to be careful with? That's distractions. And I want to give you an example of distractions. That's when a big company comes and knocks on your door and says, hey, we should do this partnership together. And I've seen that happen a lot. And it happened a lot to us that someone like Google or somebody else knocked on the door, hey, we want to work with you guys. 
And these guys have unlimited resources to suck up your resources, which means that you do not have the time to build the best product right now. And if there are any mistakes I look back on now, it is some of those projects that, yeah, you get to, oh my God, it's Amazon. We got to do this thing. Just say, no, Jeff, you're not going to, we're not going to do this. So I think that's one thing. It's just an example of a distraction, but be wary of distraction. Some of them can really suck up your resources. You do that, do that too much, you'll lose in the end. That's really, again, excellent advice on distraction, but let me push a little bit on it. Being a young sure. company, right? You're all about tech and the product. The part where you need a lot of money is the distribution. Sure. Now, a big company comes along, they have that distribution, they have that audience. It is so hard to say no when sure. you have that. Yeah. So I think the way to get back on that is just, you're totally right. They have distribution, they have the model, they have the distribution, they have the money, they can do all these things. But what you need to get out of your head is that, or into your head is that they're not going to give it to you. Mm. They're just not going to give it to you. The problem is that there is a misalignment here. And usually you don't have a lot of leverage. So you have this thing which they think is, yeah, this is a fun toy to play with. For us, it's bloody life and, or death. But for them, it's a fun toy. They can just throw you in the garbage bin any second. And when it's that misaligned, you're never going to get a healthy relationship. It just doesn't work like that. So it is misaligned from day one. You work on it for six months. Suddenly it gets onto a C-level meeting and boom, it's done Monday morning. And you put all your eggs in that basket, that's a problem and that could kill your startup. So I think that's incredibly important. The advice I will give to people is that once you have leverage, once you have something they really want, then you can talk to them, but not before that. As an example, we work today, we work with Samsung actually, we work with Snap, all those guys. And it's just more of an equal working relationship now because we have something they want and they can't get anywhere else. If you don't have that, don't bother. So the underlying, I think, takeaway for me is equality. How much do you bring and how much does the yes. partner bring? And if there's a highly unequal equation, then it's probably not in your best interest to engage. Exactly. It's just going to be a time sink. Yeah. Right. Totally. Especially for a B2C company, it's so expensive to do marketing and distribution. I would love yeah. to hear, I know there's, there's so many channels out there. They're just, and new ones are coming all the time. There's all kinds of marketing gimmickry that happens when you think about the fickle consumer. What has worked for you? How do businesses think about figuring out the right channels to focus on to get that marketing and distribution going? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, like B2C, like you say, it is a pain in the butt. It's incredibly difficult. It's really unpredictable too, but obviously it can be done. It also depends on what kind of product you have. Do you have some kind of virality in your product? Some products are, some products are not. If you have some virality, you can actually just build a good product and they will come. Though competition is insane. But, but I'm old enough to remember when distribution of software, the only way to do that was by working with some big companies, some distributors. That has changed now. We have people think App Store, like whatever. App Store is global instant distribution with payment. 15 years ago, this was a total dream. Nobody could ever do this thing. So the playing field is so much more equal now where you can just build, you can build amazing software and really have distribution like you've never seen it before. So that takes me back to the product again. If you can build an amazing product, you definitely should. I know we're going to talk about YouTube and some of my videos out there, but I have one video, which is 
And this is specifically about apps. How do you launch? How do you get an app out there? And I sat down with one uh, guy named Jakob who has 22 different apps that they run very successfully. And we just go through a list of, of all these ways you can actually launch an app and get it out there. So there are many different strategies and we're really hard on some of them. So you should definitely check it out if you're in that stage. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to mention this, but anyone listening out there, any startup founder, um, Heine has a YouTube channel called Raw Startups. And as I was preparing for this interview, I had the pleasure of going through a lot of the videos and they are simply gold. Absolutely Thank recommend every one of you to check it out. You can tell it comes from an area of very deep experience and he brings lots of experts in different areas to tackle specific issues or problems or strategies that you might be struggling with. Highly recommend it. I'll put it at the links at the end of the show. Thank okay, you. great. So Heine, let's talk about your own personal journey. My brother is an entrepreneur and has just gone from founding a company, really struggling, become all the ups and downs and has just managed to sell the company, but it was a very hard journey. And I think it's transformational. It has been for him and I'm sure it has been for you. If you could look at that journey and talk a bit about some of the learnings you've had building the company in terms of the kind of leader you need at different stages of the company. And again, any advice that you can give? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's an interesting question, right? Because I've built a company and I built a couple of companies and still I look in the mirror and I still have my doubts about that question. I'm not sure I know the answer. Maybe I should actually turn around. What do you think? What kind of do you think I am? obviously a highly successful one, at least from the outside, when you look at it, you figured it out. Like you did all asp you did all stages of it. And it's now a well-known, highly successful company. So it looks like you have been able to change for the different stages in the company. And to me, I feel like that's what you need for a founder yeah, to true. have continuity is someone who just knows that in this phase, you need to be really hands-on. You need to be the founder and the salesperson and the marketing. Totally. I'm asking also because I don't know the answer, but you definitely have to have some of this, what we call 360. It means you can do a lot of different stuff and you have to be not an expert necessarily anything, but be able to dig into most things and then challenge people and so on. So I think that is, I think most people know that is, is pretty obvious. The other thing I want to mention here is something else. It also relates to becoming a father at some point is, and that's many years ago now, but the thing about being a role model, and mm. this is really something I believe in as a parent, but also as a leader that, that it's, you can't just say to your kids, you can't do this and then do it yourself. And now mm. I'm talking about the family, not as a leader, but the same thing is true as a founder, as a leader is that whatever you do will trickle down the entire organization. And so one of the most important thing as a leader is being a good role model that I firmly believe in. Yeah. And I think this is a really good segue to ask about something else that a lot of good founders take a lot of pride in, which is building the company yeah. culture. And yeah. I don't think I saw a video on that specifically, but I would love True. to hear your views on what do you think about company culture? When and how did you build the culture at Vivino? Yeah. 
I guess the reason why there isn't a video yet is because the script is still evolving in my head somewhere. I haven't gotten it out there yet. And that could mean either that I don't think it's important or I think it's important. And I can tell you, I think it's incredibly important. Culture is just the number one driver for the direction your company is going. And again, that is very linked to being a role model. So I just think it's incredibly important. It's all about what the founders, the leaders of the company do, and that just trickles down to the entire organization. So when you look, watch it, something, there was this show about Uber, for example. I don't know if you've seen it. I would also recommend that. It's When a company is not well, it just comes from the top every mm. single time. It just trickles down from the top every single time. So I'm a real believer in that culture is everything when it comes to the direction of a company. Is there a specific type of culture that's conducive to startups? If culture is so important, what kind of culture should no. founders be building within their companies? Yeah, and that, I think we talked a little bit about the earlier. It really depends on the stage too. So once you get going, you really want people that are almost like you, entrepreneurial, right? So in Denmark, I use the image of a layer cake, but you also use like a pizza. But let's say you have a pizza of things that need to be done. And once you walk in, the founders need to split that pizza up and say, you do this half, I do the other half, and off we go. And then as you grow as a company, you give people slices of work they need to do. And in the early stages, those slices are big. So you can't really use hardcore experts. You need people that are more broad. And as you grow bigger and bigger, those slices become smaller and smaller. So you can really start hiring people. Um, so I think you should visualize that when you start hiring people that you you need some people that are a little, little bit more broad in the beginning, are a little bit more like you can do, if mm -hmm. not 360, then 180 or something like that. And this is a mistake that people often do because they would hire, oh, she was at Google. She was amazing. But then again, at Google, she had a really small slice of the pizza and did an amazing job. But here doesn't really work. So think about that slice, I would say. Yeah. So the hiring piece is really critical, like understanding what your company needs and hiring the right person is important for building the culture that you need for that stage of company. Totally. Totally. It's all trickles down, especially the early people too. They're like a loudspeaker of whatever you do too. They're, they're, yeah. So you got to get that right. How important do you think getting along with people is? I find that's always a, a, an interesting question. Do you hire people that are like you, but different functional skill set, but they're like you and you can see yourself getting along with. How important is that in building a cohesive culture? Yeah, I, I actually think it's something you have to be careful with in the way that we will hire people that are like us and that might not be a good idea. So if a 28-year-old white man developer starts a company before everyone around him is going to be within five years of that age, also be a developer and a little bit introvert, whatever. So I would say something to be aware of and actually try and work against and really try and hire people that are different than you. Otherwise you will, it can hurt the culture. It can be just a narrow, everything just become mm. narrower. I think you need diverse people on the team. So something to be aware of and, and work against at the same time, you need people that work like you, meaning understand how you work and how you communicate and so on. And I think Google also has this philosophy around, hey, is it somebody you want to drink a beer with? And that is a factor when they hire people. If you don't mm -hmm. want to drink a beer with the person, I don't want to hire the person. I might have different opinions about that. Personally, I I probably enjoy drinking a beer with most people. So <laughs> maybe that's easier for me. <laughs> Okay. This is, I think, a good time to ask a question around the transition when you step down. Yeah. As I understand it, you stepped down once before 
in 2018, I believe. Yes. Yeah. And then you took the reins back again. And then yep. you stepped down recently. Every founder probably at some point contemplates stepping down and bringing someone else. And I think it'd be really valuable to hear your experience on when is the right time? How do you know when is the right time? And how do you find the right person to take over? Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you look at venture funded startups, most of them are built for a founder to be there for some time, build it to a certain level, and then get out at some point. We don't see it like a family business and my daughter is going to take over or something like that. I don't think most people would see it like that. So start with realizing that at some point it is going to happen. So that's something to put into your head at least. And then I think once you feel like, hey, it's more not fun than it's fun, and maybe the skill set, maybe what's left of the pizza isn't really what I'm good at. Mm. That's when you really need to think about, okay, this is not for me. Uh, we should find somebody else to run it. And for me, it was a, a little bit of both, meaning uh, the company has grown to a certain size, moving a little bit slower, heavily operational, both something I found maybe less interesting, but also not what I'm really good at. Um, so then you realize, okay, it's time to to talk to somebody else. And how do you know? What kind of person to bring in? Okay, so the timing is when you feel that the skill set needed for that stage of company is different than maybe what yeah. you are good at. And, to, and also enjoy maybe. And, yeah. and also enjoyment. I think you make a good point that at some if the equation changes where you're having less fun and you're working more, then probably that's another time to think about it. Yeah. Okay, so that's timing. What about the type of person to bring in? Why did yeah. the first time work not work for you? And why did it work the second time? Is it the person, the timing, or a combination of both? Yeah, it is. It's a, honestly a combination of many things. But first of all, I want to say it's really difficult on all kinds of levels. And I remember when uh, I'm still with Vino. I spend around half my time on Vino now. I remember in the early days when the new CA had come on board and and people come up to me and said, honey, you're doing a great job. This is working really well. And they couldn't tell. I was bloody burning inside. <laughs> so I was just yeah. keeping my mask on. But it was really hard. There's a big meeting over there. And it can't be important because I'm not in it. And I wasn't supposed to be in it. So you really have to think about those things that it's really difficult. One more thing on that is that what sometimes can happen is that you look at the strengths and the weaknesses of the founder and then you end up looking at a lot of the weaknesses. So what mm. is Heine not so good at? Let's mm. make sure we get that person in there. And then you find somebody who really excels at those things. And then you realize we forgot to look at my strengths. So when I got out, this person was horribly bad at things that I was good at. Yeah. So just something to think about there. So yeah, it is just a difficult process. And the founder plays a really big role. The founders can really mess that up too. Yeah, be careful when you do it. But start by realizing that it has probably has to be done at some point. Yeah. Let the stage of the company and what the company needs guide you versus what's the strengths and weaknesses of the current founder only. Yeah, I would say that, so. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And the last thing I want to touch upon before I, I ask you some questions about wines, obviously, sure. is yeah. fundraising. What you feel Vivino and the founding team did right when it came to fundraising? Now, let's start with that. Think about your early rounds, your Series A seed and Series A, which are like the usually tough ones. What are some of the things you think you did right? Yeah, I think one thing you have to realize too is that, yes, fundraising is difficult. It's tiring and closing around can be, it can totally wear you out. 
But really, when you think about it, it's much harder to build a product that's used by millions of people than actually fundraising. So if you focus your energy on getting the traction, then the money will come. The money will flow. I'm in the Nordics now, and there is a lot of money here for the right startups, for the right products. So I would say focus a lot on traction, getting the traction out, get people to use it, make sure it's sticky and those things. And then what you sell to the VCs, I'm sure they're not listening to at all, is that it's all about FOMO, right? It's all about fear of missing out. So whatever you have this curve going up and saying, oh, by the way, what's happening in the next couple of months, that's insane. It's going to change everything. And you can never, ever give them a reason not to invest. This Mm. is crucial. You don't say one word ever that says, we'll just take their times. Like they are, they don't know this, but they are in their head looking for a reason not to invest right now. And if I can wait Mm. two months, definitely anytime. So you can never, ever give them a reason not to invest right now. But because this thing's going to happen right now, either you're a part of it or you're not. And then generally I would say to, to founders, if you have something that's reasonably good, look, your startup is the only one like they're out there. If they miss that, there's not going to be another one. Money is just money. So if you don't get their million, you'll get someone else's million. So a little bit of arrogance around that your startup is unique. Money is just money. You said something interesting about having that traction first. So did you focus more on organic? Because in the consumer space to get traction, typically you need a lot of marketing money. I think that's changed a little bit, honestly. I think investors have become really careful with the money that are fuel, the fuel, the growth with marketing, honestly. Marketing is something you put on top. Focus now, I would say, is much more on organic. So ours is all organic almost. Okay. So that's become really important now. And, and it doesn't have to be like, oh, we need thousands of visits per day or whatever. Just having something that grows really matters. This is what the investors can be good at. See, like, mm. there is something there. It's not big yet, but with these numbers, if this keeps going, it's interesting. Mm. So if you get the organic going with people saying, okay, the numbers are small, but there's something there and they believe in that, that can create some magic, I think. Cool. So the organic growth and showing traction is key to getting a good fundraising round going. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What else do you think we need to do to get good fundraising rounds? One thing, yeah. So fundraising specifically, yeah. One thing is like a fun thing to say is be a second time founder, but that's hard for a first time founder. (laughs) But somehow it means something. It means, hey, uh, getting going and doing something really matters. So even if you did something for two or three years, didn't really work out, but you gave it all you had, and then you start something else, that also matters quite a bit. When it comes to early stage funding, founders are incredibly important. Yeah, I always say like founders build companies, founders break companies. So it's really important to show that, hey, I'm someone who's going to stick with this and going to keep going on this. So the more you can do that, the better. I know that you do angel investing and that's something that you've said you look for in a founder, the ability to keep going capacity. What else do you look for in founders? Yeah, I think just to expand on that is the stamina is just number one thing. If I look at the, maybe a resume and see a lot of short stints and try three different startups and they and for a really short time, that's concerning to me. I don't like that. The other thing is one thing I would say is think big, start small. And if you noticed that I when I end all my videos on YouTube, I say 
Now stop watching and go build something. And that's really important. We all have different resources and so on, but you can always build something. And you, even if you don't have that many resources, build something, make something happen. Resourcefulness is incredibly important. You talk to a founder and they tell a story, then two weeks later, they come back and say, wow, you built this. That's amazing. I think for me, that matters a lot. Nice. I love that. So keeping to the fundraising and angel investing theme, what ideas are you really excited by these days? Yeah, I I haven't worked with Vivino for so many years. There are certain things that I really like. I love things that are community built, that have some kind of community around it. And I love data. So anything that crosses those two things, maybe some commerce on top of it too. But, but I get really excited about that. The thing about, about community, for example, if you have a piece of software, hey, I want to build this piece of software. And then somebody looks at, hey, we can copy that easily. We just pay someone to build this. Done. Three months later, they have a copy of it. But if you have a community around it, it's really difficult to do that. So as soon as you get some community data aspect to it, it becomes interesting. So I like, I really like that. Obviously, I have some experience in that too. Looking at the data, I know Vivino sits on top of a ton of data with the bottles being scanned and the ratings and user reviews, et cetera. Can you share some interesting insights or trends? Quickly on our product, which what I think is like personalization is something we're super excited about. It's always been like, and the wine industry has been around for thousands of years. So we really decided we wanted to maybe be the first ever to do real personalization on any person in the world, if they're interested, and any bottle of wine in the world. So the data we have is not just ratings, it's also reviews. And we've used machine learning AI to get the tastes out of every single wine, not by tasting it, but our users taste it. And then we get that taste characteristic out of every single wine in the world. At the same time, we're starting to understand what you like. Mm. And then matching those two with the amount of data we have is something we're incredibly excited about. Now we have this new just Netflix score that once you've used the app a little bit, we'll put a score on how likely is it that you'll like it. So hmm. 97% or 3%, eh, not so good, and so on. So that I'm super excited about uh, for sure. So I have a friend who sent in a question for me when he knew that I was That's interviewing good. you. So this is a question from him. He's an aspiring winemaker, small duo that started a wine business in Northern California. How does an aspiring winemaker like that, a new vineyard, get visibility on your platform. Okay. So for a new winemaker, the difference is that back in the day, we had the wine spectator, Robert Parkers of the world. They might rate like 20, because they had experts, they might write 20,000 wines a year. We would get 100,000 ratings a day. So the proportions are totally different. The chance of his wine actually being seen by our users, someone realizing, wow, this wine is incredible at this price point, are really high. You don't have to wait for an expert to, expert to come by. So that's something I'm excited about, to really give a chance to these smaller winemakers and their wines being seen. Yeah, you're giving the same platform, whether you're a newbie or totally. a really well-known wine, which is incredible. I read somewhere that you did a test and you saw the ratings of an expert winemaker's versus the crowdsourced ratings of Vivino being very close. Can you comment totally. on that? Because I thought that was just amazing. Yeah, exactly. So we took, I think we took 5,000 wines and looked at the correlation between, I think it was a Robert Parker and a wine spectator. And the correlation was so strong that we put ourselves in the middle in between those two. And the thing about the community is that it's more consistent. 
hmm. because wine expert might have a bad day and then suddenly it just isn't, the rating isn't right. Whereas yeah. a community, it's, it comes out much better, much more consistently, really. I still can't get my mind around that, Heine, because you have so many people with different wine experience that are using Vivino. So to think that people who are like complete novices, and then you have people who are probably experts, it's amazing. Yeah. So the funny thing there is like, how can these novices even know that this wine is good? And let me give you the big shocker there. They don't drink that wine. So the people that drink really good wine, they know what's good and what's not so Mm. good. So there's some sort of automatic built into that. So it does make sense. Yeah, it's very highly correlated with the experts, but obviously the scale is different. We'll have every single wine, including your friends, but you're in the UK. So where does he make wine? He's in, in Oregon, actually. He's a, oh, I know. that's one of my favorite. Does he do Pinot or? I believe Pinots, yes. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, okay, cool. Okay, nice. I will connect you to him, actually. Yes, uh, you must. Because he had reached out to me as well. So that's a great segue into the last part of my conversation, which is just really getting to know you better. And I want to start with, what's your favorite wine? Have you, has your sort of experience with wine changed from where you were to now? Yes. And what are some of your favorite wines? Yeah, I think when you start drinking wine, you probably drink some really powerful stuff that you can really taste. Maybe you go to Australia and get some Shiraz or something like that. And they're also really nice and soft Shiraz. There's nothing wrong with that. But some of the like less expensive Shirazes, a lot of people start with, which is great. I think I've, involved, I've lived in California for many years and actually drank a lot of local Cabernet Sauvignons from California and also actually, which is a different one, Pinot Noirs. And we did talk a little bit about this, but I love Pinots these days and actually specifically Oregon Pinots from the US are really nice. So I enjoy those very much. And then I love champagne um, and, or, and sparkling wine for that matter. But champagne is something I really enjoy too. Awesome. Excellent. Completely not related to wine. I always ask my guests, what is a book that they would recommend? Your favorite book that made an impact on you or just has been memorable for you? Sure. Yeah. The thing is, you always end up picking a book that you read recently. But I did have one that I read recently that actually did made an impact on me and I really enjoyed. And it's very popular. It's a little bit boring, I will say. But it's called Atomic Habits. Yeah. You probably heard about it. It's on the bestseller. It's all about it. It's about changing your habits and the way you live in a small way and then take it from there. And it's something I really believe in. And I also want to mention it because it relates back to Vivino in the way that how we built Vivino. So Vivino is not something where there was ever a silver bullet. Vivino is all about the data, the wine data. And the way to improve that is to improve it in very small ways every single day. And that's how we became the best. It wasn't from a Tuesday to Wednesday when we did a big release, it was every single day improve it a tiny little bit. And like a few years later, you're the winner. And I think that's true in life too. I love that. Focus on the data incrementally one day at a time. Nice. I usually ask about your favorite European city, but I think given your background, I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite wine region? One of my favorite regions is actually Villa Met in Oregon, where they do amazing Pinot Noirs. And then my last question is, a favorite quote? Yes. One I do repeat quite a lot, and it's obviously related, and I've actually said it, is think big, start small. Because a lot of people fail at both. They think big, but don't know how to start. And maybe they start small, but don't know how to think big. So think big, start small. Excellent. I love that last piece of advice. Thank you so much, Heine, for being on my podcast today. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. 
And I'm, a, I'm an avid user of Vivino. I'm always scanning labels because I want to know more about wines. And I've just started in my journey. I think the pandemic probably got a lot of people started on their yes, journey true. to wines. Yeah. And I found your app really helpful in making me not feel stupid in asking questions. I yeah. felt like I could educate myself a little bit and ask slightly more interesting questions than if I didn't have something like that. Really appreciate the app yeah. and the company you've built. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And we really want to, this is a word we've used sometimes is also giving people confidence. I love that. Giving you confidence in your wine knowledge. And we also say, by the way, that use the app, but don't use it too much. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Great. Thank you very much for being on my show Thank today. You. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and the ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.